Welcome to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast, a podcast about being gay and sober and not just on Sundays. In this podcast, we'll explore the ins and outs of being queer and sober in a world where drinking and using are woven into the fabric of our culture. This season, we'll be hearing the stories of addiction and recovery from sober gays from all over the world. Every story of recovery is unique in its own way, and every story deserves to be heard. So let's go. In this episode, we welcome Clinton. Clinton is 40 years old and born in Chicago. He grew up in the fast life and bright lights of Las Vegas. He is a survivor of sexual assault and is sharing his story to give hope to the voiceless or the ones in the seats at meetings that are afraid to tell their story. Please welcome Clinton. Before we get started, a disclaimer. This episode of the Sober Gay Sunday podcast gets very intense, with Clinton and I speaking very candidly about issues of rape and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Clinton, welcome to the pod. Hey, how are you? Very, very good. It's good to have you. Yes, good to see you. So um, why don't we start off by you telling us your name, your preferred pronouns, and just a little bit about yourself. All right, uh, cool. I'm uh, Clinton. I go uh, he, him. Um, I've been sober six months. Um, So yeah, a little bit about my story. You know, they talk about um, powerfulness and... um, you know, you have, you're powerless over your drug, but I was powerless over a, a sexual assault that happened to me. Um, yeah. Um, so that, that took over, you know, that took power over my life for like 30 years. I was in active addiction for 25 years. Wow. Um, yeah. So, um, but I never knew that I was powerless over this sex, uh, trauma that happened in my life because I didn't deal with it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, what had had, you know, I, I had the normal childhood, uh, grew up in, uh, Chicago, born in Chicago, grew up in the suburbs, uh, normal childhood till about 10 years old. Um, and it was just one day, you know, out with my brother and some friends, uh, at the playground and, you know, I go down the slide and, um, there's a guy in the slide hiding with a butcher knife. And um, my other friend slid down, too, and we were stuck in the slide with this guy. So he came down. We all came out, and he took me and my friend. uh, He kidnapped us, pretty much. Now, mind you, my friend, my brother, and his sister were there as well. So when he took us, he kidnapped us and took us to his house. My brother and his sister ran, and they went to go tell my parents because we lived a few blocks away. But nobody knew where we were. Nobody knew what happened to us. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, you know, being at 10 years old, you really, you know, when you see somebody with a butcher knife, what do you do? You go with them. You know? Any, and I think anyone would kind of like, you know, give in to that <laughs> threatening. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So uh, throughout those uh, three hours before I ended up escaping, it was torture, man. Um we were sodomized. We were raped. Um, just uh, and and he separated us in two rooms. So I was he was downstairs. I was in the upstairs room, and luckily in my, the room I was at, there was a window. And after he left my room after raping me for the third time, um, I was like, I have to get out. I have to leave. Like I have to do something to try to 
like save us. Um, so I broke out the window. I jumped off the roof. Um, I broke my arm in in the middle of jumping off the roof. But just mind you, you know, I'm ten years old. I'm bleeding. I'm mm-hmm. bloody from the back. Mm-hmm. I'm naked. I'm running down the street, and I see this old woman, and the look on her face <laughs> was like she's seen a ghost. And she wrapped me up in her coat, and she called 911. And um, the police were already looking for us because, mind you, my brother and his sister had went to go uh, tell my parents. So, you know, I always considered that woman like a guardian angel for me. Um I mean- you know, uh, she was she was everything for me. Uh, come to find out, when I escaped out the window, um, he ended up slitting my friend's throat and killing him. Jesus. So, so I had that to live with. And, um, you know, at 10 years old, you think, what could you have done differently? Um, there's really nothing that I could have done differently. Um, but I lived with that for the longest time. So mind you, this lady who found me, I ended up, you know, building a relationship with her for two years until she died because she was an older lady. She, you know, she called me her guardian angel. But when she died, I felt like a part of me died. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, um, after this happened, my mother could not cope with this. She didn't know how to cope with it. She turned to drugs and alcohol. She became a woman that I didn't even recognize. Mm-hmm. My dad, on the other hand, was so sick of her bullshit and stuff that they ended up getting divorced. And that left me to fend for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I had no outlets. I didn't deal with it. I didn't, you know, and I, I dealt with, I dealt with the fear, the shame, the guilt, the fear that he was going to come get me from somehow um, because he was sentenced to life in prison plus 70 years. Yeah. Um, but in my mind at that age, I felt like he was going to get me somehow. Yeah. Of course. He was going to have somebody come get me. I was scared. And, you know, I had trauma like with even going to playgrounds after that. Of course. Um, so I did some crazy shit. Um, I laugh about it nowadays, but um, right after that happened, I um, I ca- I set the bushes on fire in front of my school to catch the school on fire because I couldn't handle going to that playground. Mm-hmm. So I caught the school on fire. We had to be re- re- relocated to a different school. So it helped for like a year, but then I had to go back to that school after the school was rebuilt. Um, and I was a terror. I was a fucking terror. Um and one day my mother was just like, after, you know, she was doing her drugs and everything and she was a terror herself, but I didn't know how to deal with anything. So, um, she just said one day, she said, I'm done with you. I'm, I can't deal with you. I'm giving you up. Um, I'm giving up rights of you. I'm sending you to your dad. When my parents divorced, my dad had moved to Vegas. Now that was like a blessing in disguise. Um, because we all, I have four siblings, and we all ended up living with my dad at some point in time. Mm-hmm. So he ended up raising all four kids by himself. Wow. What a good man. You know, yeah. I uh, my dad's like my best friend nowadays. He's my rock. He's my biggest fan. But 
like I said, that was a blessing in disguise because you have four kids, you have to put a roof and food over their head. So he was never there. Yeah. So what do I do? You know, I had no childhood because that happened. I had to step up to the role as a parent to basically send my sisters to school every day, make sure they got to school. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, living in Las Vegas, they glamorize alcohol. Yeah. You know, and then I found alcohol. And I thought I I thought I had arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time I had alcohol, I felt like I could be somebody because I was so sick of hiding and being in fear of everything. Yeah. Everything, you know. I mean, it was so bad, like that I when I was like after that assault happened, my parents would have to have a like multiple pairs of pants at school because I wet my pants all the time because I was scared of everything. Yeah. And that lasted a while. And um, so for we're in Vegas. I'm 15 years old. I find liquor. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I've arrived. Yeah. I, I could feel, I, I could feel, I could be, I could be social. I could talk to people. I don't have to hide anymore. Um. But that was in a beast in itself because, you know, I've seen how my mom was when she was an alcoholic and she was nasty. She was mm-hmm. a nasty woman. Um, and she didn't give a fuck about us. She, gave, you know, she picked men over her kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that first time drinking, I just I, I felt like I had arrived and everything was good. You know, and I drank throughout high school. But I mean, I would get so drunk and black out and not remember anything. And I thought that was okay. I thought that's how everybody got drunk because that's mm-hmm. how everybody got drunk that I hung out with. Yeah. You know, um, and, and living in Vegas, they, like I said, they glamorize it. So there's keggers every weekend. We'd get drunk every weekend. Um, and then one day I was hanging out with, you know, my school being grown up in Vegas, it's very Mormon. Um, and I had three of the Mormon girlfriends that I hung out with. And they introduced mess to me. Wow, big job. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, just like dude, you know, they pull out a light bulb and I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, it's a it's, it's a pipe, watch. Just hit it. And uh, so I hit it and oh my god, I was off to the races. Yeah. Um that's that that feeling that I felt from that first high was like I was Superman, I could do anything I could. Yeah. I could, um, you know, engage in sex again mm-hmm. and, and sex that, um, you know, uh, being being raped at such a young age. I, I guess sex for me was like, I don't know. I don't know how I felt about it. I just didn't like it. Yeah. But when I got meth, I didn't care. Yeah. I would have sex with anybody, mm-hmm. guys and women. Yeah. You know, um. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and that's so why I dabbled through that without throughout high school. Um, I stopped doing it. I went to college. I did get a degree, um, but you know, I may have stopped using meth uh, throughout college and and sometime. But I didn't stop drinking. I didn't stop using cocaine. I didn't stop using all the other drugs. I was yeah. a mess. I was the type of drunk that would get fired on his day off because I would go to work and act a fool and get fired. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm a bartender. 
Um, that's what I've done most of my life. And um, I, uh, <laughs> when you get fired from a job on your day off, that really says something. Yeah. But I didn't think I had a problem still. I, I just thought it was the norm. I thought I was mm. going to be messed up my whole life. I didn't care. I didn't want to feel. I didn't want to do anything. Um, and then uh, I moved back to Chicago after college. And that's where my, my drug use really came into, like, full-fledged meth use. And like I said, I used meth in Vegas, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't like Chicago. Uh, meth Chicago, sex parties, GHB. I was like, sex party? What's a sex party? People yeah. really do this? Oh, my God. People, what's GHB? Why are they at? Why are they making animal sounds? Why do I want to do that? (laughs) Why is that anything I want to do? And then I tried it, and I'm like, I love this. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) It's crazy how the world spins. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So um, I really got into doing drugs. And and when I moved back to Chicago, you know, and I really didn't want to do meth again, but I was at this, I met this person on, on Manhunt that dates me a little bit um (laughs) so that dates me um so i met somebody i went to their house and it was like a three-day binge but all i was doing was ecstasy there and i was like okay cool i could be around it meth and not want to do it but that third day he was going out of town to make a trip to the west coast to bring some back on the plane well he left me with his boyfriend and the games was on i that you know once he went to the airport and I was left with his boyfriend, um, that three days became six days. Mm-hmm. And I didn't leave the house and I just partied with his boyfriend. And uh, and then it was, you know, uh, maybe a, a weekend warrior. I was a weekend warrior at first. Um, and then it became an everyday warrior. And I remember I, at the height of my game, I was using meth every day for yeah. years. And it became so crazy that I started selling it. Um, mm-hmm. But I was selling it a lot. I was distributing it to like four states around me. I was, I was, I was, I was flying out to the West Coast and bringing pounds back in my suitcase and thinking that was okay. Yeah. And thinking that, oh, it's just, it's bomb dogs at the airport. They're not going to catch me, which they never did, thank God, until they did. Um, I still, I ended up selling drugs to an undercover cop. Um, um, and, you know, I, I, I count that as, a, it's like a blessing in disguise because if that never happened, I don't know where I would be. Um, but that ended up happening. They came, and at this time, I was a food and beverage manager at the Hyatt uh, in Chicago, the assistant food and beverage manager at the Hyatt. The DEA came and arrested me in front of all my employees. So that was spectacular. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> I come back to work and my boss is like, I was like, I'm so sorry about that. And the cop, the DA agent told me to lie to my boss and said that I had an old traffic warrant. So, um, and my boss, my, my boss that I reported to said, oh, it's not like I've never got arrested at work before. So I thought everything was okay. <laughs> <laughs> but when the, when the GM found out about it, I was terminated, uh, rightfully so. Um, but you know, throughout the trial and everything on my case, I, I was using still, that wasn't yeah. my rock bottom, you know, that was not my rock bottom. Um, uh, 
I, you know, and in that meantime, you know, I was a functioning addict for a long time. Um, but I'll, I'll back up a little bit because I, I missed some things. Yeah. What really led me into like my massive, massive drug use is that I had a friend out here that I had sold to, um, uh, him and his boyfriend. And I had just met his boyfriend the prior day. And then uh, the next day I get a call from my friend saying, did you hear what happened to uh, my friend Trenton? And I'm like, no, what happened? He's like, his boyfriend killed him last night. Jesus. So, you know, um, it was all over the news. I don't know. You may have heard about it. It was a professor at Northwestern that collaborated with another professor from England. And they wanted to do a snuff video. Mm -hmm. Um, And they stabbed my friend like 78 times. They nearly decapitated him. They cut off his private part. Um, And me, I really felt like I caused that death because if it wasn't for well, if it wasn't for me selling them the GHB and the and the meth, in my head, I sold them the product that made him G out and where they were able to do this to him. Yeah. Um. So at that after that, I'm like, I don't care if I live, I don't care if I die. I really, well, I hoped I died. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was a lot for me. Um. Because we were really good friends, and 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 that just it devastated me for somebody and for somebody to kill him like that. Like I can't even imagine that. Like he had all his blood was lost. He lost all his blood. I mean, like it was just a horrible death to die. Yeah. Um. So I'll fast forward to back to where I get um, I got caught. I got arrested. Um. Now, mind you, for twenty five years, I kept it together. I always had the house. I always had a job. Um, and I always sold drugs. Um, so I always made good money. Um, until I didn't, until I seen everybody around me getting arrested and then I got arrested. Um, and then I lost my apartment. I lost apartments. Let me just, not just one apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, uh, living in a hotel room. All my money had ran out and I'm going to court and I'm like, and I was just, I was just sentenced to, um, the judge didn't want the judge wanted to give me prison time. Um, thank God I had a really good lawyer uh, where I was uh, got task probation. Task probation is where it's like drug court. Okay. So I have to get drug tested for two years. If I fail any drug tests, which I did, I would be thrown in jail. My probation officer, I was really cool with. She was cool with me. I failed my two first drug tests. She said, Clint, if you fail one more drug test, you're going to prison for seven years. Wow. That wasn't rock bottom for me yet. <laughs> Not rock, going. Bottom. <laughs> rock bottom for me was um um a conversation. Uh, you know, like I said, my money had ran out. I had nowhere to go. I was living on the streets. I had a conversation with my sister, and the conversation went like this. And this was rock bottom for me. She called me, she, you know, and I was being my typical bullshit self. Um, and she said, uh, Clint, do you know what day it is today? She's like, and I'm like, what do you mean? And, you know, she's like, it's Donnie's birthday. Do you know your nephew? Do you, need, do you even know how old he is? And I'm like, wow. <laughs> bitch, had to, bitch had to give me a low blow like that, huh? Right. <laughs> but it was the low blow I needed. Yeah. Because I didn't know any of my nieces and nephews. Mm-hmm. And I missed out on their beautiful lives. 
and they're aged from like 16 to two. Um, and I have five beautiful nieces and nephews and, you know, they all, they all want to know me. They all call me Gunkle Clint. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, I missed out on that. I missed out on a lot of life. Um, and that was a low blow I needed. You know, it wasn't the arrest. It wasn't, it wasn't any of that. It was that conversation for her to open my eyes. And, you know, th- so the next day I just looked in the mirror and I, I asked myself, am I happy with my life? Am I happy with myself? Do I love myself? Mm-hmm. And all the answers were no. Thank you for tuning in to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast. Please feel free to like, subscribe, share, and comment. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Sober Gay Sunday. You can also email me directly at SoberGaySunday at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, stay sober, guys. I'm so sick of small talk and tell me something, you're talking.